Thanks. Have a seat, and uh, we're going to have a reading. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> my name is Sean. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm going to be doing the scripture reading. Today, we're going to be looking in Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 55. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. For they were all waiting for him. Just then there came a man named Jairus, a leader of the synagogue. He fell at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, who was dying. As he went, the crowds pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. And though she had spent all she had... On physicians, no one could cure her. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his clothes, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Then Jesus asked, who touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and press in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I noticed that power had gone out from me. When the woman saw that she could not remain hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and now she had been immediately healed. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. You do not trouble the teacher any longer. When Jesus heard this, he replied, do not fear, only believe, and she will be saved. When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. They were all weeping and wailing for her, but he said, do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and called out, Child, get up. Her spirit returned, and she got up at once. Then he directed them to give her something to eat. Good morning again, folks. My name, as I said, is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. Um, and I am the lead pastor here at Zao. And uh, Zao, I love the name Zao. It's something that, that came to us after some, you know, thoughtful prayer. Um, it's, it's hard to know how to name your community. You want to be um, memorable and catchy and also not evoke all of the horrible associations that so many of us have with church. And so when we started talking about... Um, what we wanted, we wanted something that captured our mission, but in a single word, a single idea. Zao is not something that's immediately recognizable to a lot of people who speak English um, as their first language, but Zao is uh, in the Greek, in the New Testament. It's a word from the Bible, and it means to be among the living. The broader definition is uh, not lifeless, not dead but alive among the living. 
And this is something that, that means a lot to me because growing up in the church, I always thought it was really weird that we had this kind of religious obsession with death. A lot of the church has, has formed itself around death and around the death of Jesus, but also our death and what happens to us afterward. Now, it makes sense to form spirituality, hopes, dreams, stories, mythology around what happens when we die because it's a mystery and it's terrifying. But what doesn't make sense to me is doing that to the exclusion of all else when the person you are trying to center in your faith is Jesus. Because Jesus actually didn't seem to engage death except to destroy it with life. Jesus was not super worried about what happens when we die. And in fact, Jesus doesn't really have a lot of time to talk about our concepts of heaven or hell. Jesus isn't concerned with that. And in fact, when he is approached about those things, he says, our God is not a God of the dead, but a God of the living. Just this sort of real quick, the end. That's not the concern. Jesus' concern is life, living life fully, being fully alive, being engaged in the world. Jesus' concern is that we are living half-lives, that we have one foot in and one foot out of the life that we have been giving. Jesus is calling us into the fullness of life with one another and with God. And Jesus then positions himself against those systems of death, evil, and oppression that keep life suppressed, that keep life down. When Jesus opposes the Roman Empire, he's opposing the mechanisms of death for the purposes of life. When Jesus heals people, he's, he's healing people from the mechanisms of death so that they might live. And so as we gather as a church community in the name of Jesus, we claim Zao, life, to be fully alive, to be among the living, to be those among us who are invested in this life, which doesn't mean that we have um, nothing to say about what happens in death, but it does mean that we put our claim first and foremost here on this earth, in this life that we have been given by our God who asks us to show up for it all the way, to be transformed, not to simply make our way through life toward death, but to see life as the ultimate purpose. This eternal life that we're talking about, I am deeply convinced Jesus is talking about it here and now. Be eternally and completely alive here and now. And we have sold that for a promise of heaven. Now believe me, I trust that God has incredible things in store for us when we die. But I believe that God has incredible things in store for us when we live. And our world has been constructed around this kind of half-life. In fact, we as a culture have oriented ourselves more towards survival than towards life for centuries. A lot of us are just trying to get by, am I right? And that is not just a personal affliction. That is not just something that's happening to you. That is something systemic, something built in. That is part of what we're all swimming in is these conditions that make it so difficult to fully live that we are all just trying to get by. And I get it. We got to do that first, right? Can't live if you aren't surviving. But we get trapped. We get trapped in these mechanisms of just getting by. Survival, as I said, is important. We can't, we can't live unless we survive first. And I know that firsthand. Some of you have heard me talk 
um, from, from the, our, our so-called pulpit, right? Um, about my own struggles, my own trauma, my own um, anxiety and depression. As an adolescent, I picked some really awful ways to try and survive. Now for me, that mostly, you know, that was like substance abuse and sarcasm and closed cigarettes. And you know, it worked for survival. It was a little touch and go there, especially with the substance use. But that's what I did, I got by. And some of us are using those same mechanisms to get by to survive. Others of us rely on uh, people-pleasing, overachieving, and we do these things as if our survival depends on it, right? What are the things that you do just to survive, just to get by? Those things, while they might be important for you to make it to tomorrow, they're not enough. They're not enough, and God has so much more for you. But the earth that we live in is conditioning us to, to see that that is all we have. All we have is one foot in front of the other, and we just have to make it to the next day. We are so steeped in the mechanisms of death that our survival is all we can concentrate on. And so when we have this kind of one foot in, one foot out uh, mentality, a lot of us end up just trying to make it through the day. How many of you in the last you know, month or week or 24 hours or minutes have said, well, I just need to make it to insert whatever next checkpoint? Yeah, I didn't even ask for y'all's hands and you were like, yes. <laughs> I feel you, I do that. And also I wanna promise you something here, there is more for you than that. There is more for you than getting by. And the call to life, the call to Zao, the call of Jesus is to move beyond getting by into a fullness of life that you actually want to be here for. A fullness of life that brings joy, that has meaning, that you don't want it to pass away from you, that you want to be in this moment here and now. And it can happen for you, and it's going to require a lot of healing. A lot of healing for you, a lot of healing for us, and a lot of healing for the whole world. But that is the promise of eternal life. Life that isn't just getting by. There's a, uh, a James Taylor song. I'm not a big James Taylor fan, uh, but my mom is, and I'm a fan of my mom. And uh, one, of her <laughs> one of her favorite James Taylor songs is called The Secret of Life. Um, if you're looking it up, it's actually The Secret O Life. It's very quaint and charming. But there's something really profound and important in it. Uh, the chorus says, the secret of life is enjoying the passing of time. The secret of life is enjoying the passing of time. How many of us actually do that? Enjoy time as it passes around us. The freedom that would be required for that is something beyond most of our imagination. And I want to tell you that that is not because of a personal failing. That is because of a system and structure that we are all steeped in, that we all participate in, of death and just barely survival. We are here as a spiritual community to break down those systems, the, the systems that have been built up within us towards survival instead of living, the systems that have been built up in the world towards survival or not, and death. We, we're here to tear those down. 
and to build with God and one another the new kingdom, the kingdom of eternal life, the kingdom of enjoying the passing of time, the kingdom of showing up fully, the kingdom of being alive here and now, fully alive, not dead, not lifeless, but alive among the living. That is what we mean when we say, hashtag Zao lives. And we are in this sermon series right now. We are in this um, giving season right now. We are in this season of declaring who we are for many, many reasons. As a lot of you know, and as we talked about extensively last week, the denomination that we are a part of has chosen the ways of death by excluding LGBT people, by doubling down on our exclusion and, and persecution and punishment of queer identified people. When I say the ways of death, I mean that in all senses. I mean that literally in the sense that people will die because people do die when the church discriminates and oppresses and excludes. So it is a way of death, of literal death for people. And I mean that in a, a theological sense, in a spiritual sense. That is the way of death. That is the way of the world. That is the way of evil and systems of oppression. Whereas the way of God, the way of life, is toward fullness, toward inclusion, toward all being connected, all being healed, all being reconciled to one another. And so what we say is in the face of our denomination choosing the ways of death, Zhao lives. We live in that we survive. We will live to fight another day. The, the denomination's choices will not shut us down. I know that there are some folks who have been worried about that, and I want to reassure you, we aren't going anywhere. We are here. We are thriving. We will grow. And we want to do so as a beacon, as a witness, as a call-in, as, as an invitation to others to say there is a way of life. There is the way towards the kingdom. And we choose that together. We build it together. So we are not going anywhere. We will survive. But we will do more than survive. We will thrive. Because that is what we came here to do. All of you who were drawn into this community are drawn in by the spirit of life that says you can have more that says you can open yourself up and not only be wounded, that says there are parts of you that are aching for healing, for reconciliation, for comfort, for gentleness. They are here for you, and we have to seek that together. Because one of the ways of death is isolation. We are kept in our little boxes. We are kept in our little corners. There was a really cute um, meme on the internet that charmed me um, <laughs> that I'm going to tell you about. Um, and it was, you know, it was like a cartoon of some human beings um, looking at a cat that was like inside a cardboard box. And they were like, how cute and weird. It has the whole apartment to hang out in and it chooses to just sit in that little box by itself. And then it just like zoomed out to show these two humans just sitting in their apartment, like in, in the scope of the whole world. We do this, and we don't even know the ways that we isolate, the ways that we, we get into our own boxes. Those ways are the ways of survival, right? And there's nothing wrong with a little solitude. That's a heavenly, holy practice. Introverts don't unite. <laughs> but, but there are ways in which that, that um, isolation is really um, deadening. Am I right? And we find ourselves in our own little grooves, our own little boxes, not connecting to one another. And those, those ways, those patterns that we've been given by the world are ways towards death. And so the choice, the choice to be here at all, to connect with one another and with God, is a radical choice, is a countercultural choice. 
And it's one that we all make collectively. We cannot find freedom and healing and reconciliation on our own, isolated in our own little boxes. We have to bust out of that. We have to come together. We have to lean on one another and God for our healing. And so that is what we do. And again, that is what we mean when we say, Zhao, you, Zhao lives. We are here for life and to live. Now, a lot of us are struggling with sickness. And that is literal and figurative. That is physical and emotional and spiritual. We are all broken and wounded and hurting. I don't say that to denigrate your personhood. You are holy and good and perfect. And also, I'm going to bet that if you're anything like me, you're suffering. You're wounded. You're struggling. And again, that's why we come together, because we all need to be healed. And what we believe as Jesus people is that we cannot heal ourselves, that we need the healing of the divine creative power of God, and that God chooses to heal us in and through community and relationship. This, again, is a very countercultural idea. In our own culture, there is um, a different orientation to healing. It's crisis management. Western medicine is incredible. I'm not here to knock science. Science is rad. I'm on board with science. But the ways that our sciences have developed over the last couple hundred of, hundreds of years in our culture came originally out of like, things like the plague in Europe. This huge crisis that was killing people in alarming ways. Our, our medicine came out of, out of this trauma out of this system that said, hey, how do we stem the bleeding? How do we stave off um, these crises? How do we help people when they are this close to death? And Western medicine is really, really good at that, right? Um, if, we, if, we have, uh, if we're in a car accident, if we um, break a limb, if we um, have a heart attack, like there are, there are these, these instances where Western medicine can come in and do miraculous things. But because our health system is oriented toward crisis, it only shows up right at the last minute. And it's really only there to get us to the next step, to the next day. And meanwhile, a lot of us are developing chronic conditions. Those heart attacks don't happen out of nowhere. They happen because of chronic stress on the heart. Um, a lot of us are, are suffering from unexplained pain, right? Fibromyalgia and, and other chronic conditions that, that our health system just has no idea how to classify. And, and again, that's because we're just surviving. Our medicine is for survival. I want to reiterate, survival is an important pre precursor. You cannot live well if you are dead. <laughs> but we don't merely want to live, am I right? We want to live well. And as a culture, we have thrown ourselves so hard into that survival camp that we often don't have any answers for how to live well. And, and that's what brings me to the story today, these two stories that begin with crisis, but that are about so much more and reveal a nature of life and of healing in God that is fundamentally different than the way we talk about healing here in our culture. Now, I want to begin with a little bit of a preface. Healing stories can be really triggering for some people. I am not here to say some nonsense you might have heard um, that says that um, if you haven't been healed of your afflictions, that you don't have enough faith. I just want to call that out as a lie, as an evil lie that I think is perpetrated by evil in this world that is victim blaming. 
that if you are suffering, um, that if you are longing to be healed and you have not been healed in the ways that you long for, it is not your fault. And these stories, these healing stories, are not meant to indict us that we don't have enough faith. They are meant to encourage us to give us new ways of approaching our healing and to invite us into faith toward healing, but they are not here to condemn us for being um, unwell or being wounded or being in the midst of suffering. So having said that, these healing stories actually do have a lot to say to us about how to orient ourselves toward healing and how to choose to be well. It begins with a crisis. Um, Jairus' daughter is dying. So Jesus has been, has been preaching, he's been traveling, and he gets um, back into Jewish space. He's been gone from Jewish space, and he gets back in. Um, and, and a crowd gathers around him. He's, he's super cool. Uh, everybody wants to hang out. Um, and one of the people that comes up to him is, um, is Jairus. Jairus is a... Uh, He's a member of the synagogue that has sometimes been described as like the president of the synagogue. He's like important um, in, this, in this religious community. Uh, and, and it's really interesting that he comes to Jesus and says like, hey, I really need your help. Because last time Jesus was hanging out at the synagogue, according to Luke, um, it went so badly that they, they started plotting his death. Um, they were going like, to try and throw him over a cliff. And he just like disappeared. It's like later. Um, so now it's later and they want his help. Um, but Jesus is back, and, and Jairus is coming up to him. Now, Jairus is in crisis. Someone he loves is dying. His child is dying. And it doesn't quite make sense that, that Jairus would put his faith into Jesus, given this social and political context, but he does. And he seeks Jesus out, and he says, Jesus, my daughter is dying. You have to come now. And so Jesus is like, cool, all right. Like, grab the entourage, headed that way. But because Jesus is so popular, like, throngs of people just like pushing in, pushing in um, as they're traveling. And then this story takes like a really interesting turn. Um, one of the things you'll learn if you hang out here long enough is that there are multiple gospels, they're called. Um, so four books in the Bible that often tell and retell the same stories um, from different perspectives. So this one we read in Luke, but it's also um, in other gospels. And um, in both Mark and Luke, there's this shift in the story to suddenly being not from Jesus' perspective anymore, but from a woman who we've never met before. This woman has been suffering uh, for 12 years, and she's been bleeding. We assume that means that she's, um, she's had some sort of reproductive health issue for 12 years. And if she has been bleeding constantly for 12 years, that means a lot of things. Uh, it means, you know, if you're hemorrhaging for 12 years, you're probably not feeling well. Um, probably pale and listless. You don't have what it takes to fully engage. Blood is, is, our, is our source of life in so many ways. And so this is somebody who is, is not, who is, is very much physically in that one foot in, one foot out, kind of half-life physically. But it also means that socially, um, she has been outcast. Likely, if she has been bleeding for 12 years, she has not been able to um, bear children. And socially, in her context, that would have been essential for survival. 
That would have been essential for, for her well-being, is to bear children. And some of the wording in the texts that tell this story, that say she, you know, that she's alone, that she's described as being alone in the crowd, and that she has used all of her own resources on physicians, implies that she probably um, is no longer married. Um, not, uh, the inability to bear children was uh, blamed on women in that culture, and so um, that was a reason uh, that people could give for divorce. And divorce for women in that time was really dangerous uh, economically. So she's on her own. She's probably been outcast um, socially because she doesn't have these economic means of survival. And then additionally, because of purity laws and laws about cleanliness, she would not have been allowed in the temple. Because at that time, women who were bleeding, people who were bleeding, were not allowed in the temple until they were done bleeding. So for 12 years, she would have been on the outside. She would have not been welcome in those church spaces. She would have been called unclean and cast out. Sound familiar? So here is this woman, socially, religiously, and economically outcast, trying her hardest to live, but just getting by. And the story says, um, Mark, it kind of goes into more details, but she says, I believe that if I can just touch him, I will be made well. And so she fights through this crowd. She fights and, and you know, again, with, with everything she has, which is already drained, she's coming from this drained position. She fights her way through the crowds and she reaches out and all she catches is his hem, the hem of his clothing, But she says to herself, if I can only reach out and touch the hem of his cloak, I will be made well. She is so sure. And she reaches out. And in the midst of the crowd of people, Jesus is like, whoa, something just happened. Something just happened. Who just touched me? And his disciples are like, bro, you're in like a huge crowd of people. Everyone's touching you. Like, what's your deal? They actually kind of mock him. Um, where they're like, what, you're, there's, a, there's a huge crowd of people. Everyone's touching you. What's your, what's your problem? And Jesus is like, no, I felt, I felt the power go out of me. Who touched me? And this, this woman, this brave and powerful woman who is fighting for her life, seeking Jesus, seeking healing, kind of timidly is like, and, and approaches him and says, and the scriptures t- say, in all accounts, they say, and she told him the whole truth. Now, we have no idea what that means. But I imagine it means something more than just, I touched your cloak. I imagine it means she divulged her suffering. She talked about her woundedness. She talked about how connection with Jesus, connection with trust and faith and the power of the divine and creation was a thing that she trusted to heal her. It says in the scripture that she felt herself be healed. That something, that this bleeding within her stopped, ceased, when she reached out. And so when she tells Jesus the whole truth, I have to imagine they were there for hours. And Jesus is there. Jesus is with her in public, talking to a woman super against the rules. Talking to a bleeding woman super against the rules, disregarding the crowd around him because he wants to connect to this person who reached out, who wanted to be healed, and who was. And he connects with her and he says, be healed. By your faith, you are healed. 
And he affirms her and he says, your faith has healed you. And I interpret that to mean your desire to be well has made you well. You see, our God is a God of creativity and life, but our God is not coercive. God doesn't force our hand. And everything that I've experienced about God is of invitation, of a drawing in that says, I want you to be well. Do you want to be well? And so what Jesus is marveling at, what Jesus is celebrating and affirming in this woman is that she wants to be made well and that her desire has made her well. Her trust that she can be well has made her well. Her reaching out, her mustering everything she has to reach out has made her well. Do you wish to be well? I know that you are suffering. Do you want to be well? Can you imagine being well? We are in these systems, this soup of survival and death, of oppression, of getting by. Do you want more than that? Do you really? Can you even imagine? Do you trust that it's possible? Because part of her faith was trust. Trust that God wanted her. Trust that God wanted to heal her. Trust that she could be well. After 12 years, you've got to believe that's a pretty hard thing to trust in. No one wanted her. She was reaching out to God in the street because she wasn't even allowed to reach out to God in the temple. But she was reaching out. And Jesus affirms her and says, your reaching out is holy. Your desire is holy. Your desire to be healed has made you heal. God co-creates with us. God is not a God that comes in and taps people on the head and says, the end, bye. God is a God who does things with us and through us. Our God is a God who honors our agency, who says your desires are meaningful. And if you don't desire to be well, that matters. And if you do desire to be well, that is healing and salvific in and of itself. Alongside me, through my power, you are healed by your own desire to be made well. Again, I want to come back to the ways that these healing stories have been used to hurt us and to victim blame. I would love to be able to heal all of myself just by my own desire to be made well. But some of our brokenness, some of our woundedness is not individual. Sometimes it's structural or systemic. Sometimes it's generational. I have celiac disease. It's an autoimmune problem. And we don't really understand autoimmune diseases, again, with that kind of more Western crisis intervention thing. This is a chronic issue. This is something that accumulates over time. We think maybe generationally. We think probably related to trauma. So when I'm wounded by trauma, when I'm wounded by generational sickness, My desire alone to be made well isn't enough. As I mentioned before, we are all in this together. We are not isolated people seeking our own healing. We are all of creation that needs to desire our wellness. When we reach out and want to be made well, we have to do that collectively. We have to do that all together. Because if you are uh, afflicted by the sickness of the world, then healing of yourself, so to speak, can only get you so far. And so I want you to know that if you are suffering from illness, mental illness, physical illness, a spiritual burden, 
I want you to know two things. One, your desire to be made well can heal you. And two, our desire to be made well is necessary for your full healing. We need to be in this together. We need to desire our healing for ourselves and our healing for one another. We need to be in therapy, y'all. And also, we need to be in the streets. We need to be breaking down these systems of oppression and evil, and we need to protect the vulnerable. And also, we can be made well. Now, I don't know that much about faith healings. Again, I'm very science. I'm really a big fan of science. Science has a lot of skepticism about it. But we're also starting to learn um, that there are some things that happen in our bodies that we can't really explain. People are starting to study the placebo effect, uh, for instance, and saying, like, well, what is that, actually, that telling somebody that they have medicine that's going to make them better and not giving it to them still makes them at least a little better? Like, we talk about it, and we're like, ah, placebo effect. But, like, wait a minute, what? Fake medicine can heal you? Even a little bit? And we're like, oh, well, that's just the fake medicine healing. Like, I want more than that. Like, can we, like, back up to the fact that our bodies can actually heal ourselves just by the choice to engage in our own healing? That's, that's a miracle that we don't talk about at all. They did a study um, in, there's like this big placebo institute through Harvard um, that's trying to, to, to understand this and understand the mechanisms that the body has to heal itself through the choices we make, through the ideas that we absorb. And so they did a study because they were like, okay, one of the most effective placebo effects we've seen is with people with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome which is an incredibly hard thing to treat with medicine, and incidentally, related to trauma for a lot of people. So they had um, IBS patients in this placebo study, and they said, their thought was, well, we wonder if like, it's really important that people think that they're getting legit medicine, or, or will it still work if they know it's a placebo? Like, do we have to trick each other and trick ourselves? And the answer is no. They had some people, on medicine, they had some people on a placebo that they didn't tell them was a placebo, and they had some people who they said, hey, you're going to come into the doctor, we're going to give you a pill, it's a sugar pill, there's nothing in it. You're going to take it, um, and we're going to see if it helps you. It's a placebo. You know it's a placebo. And the people in that group did the best. The people who knew that it was a placebo, but were told, your body has some mechanisms. Maybe not enough, maybe you need more than just this, right? No knock on medicine, medicine is great. But like, there is something within you that can heal you by your choice to engage with it. And this is where science ends up getting into the mystical, and into the relational and psychological, where this study started to put forward what they called medical ritual as an important factor in healing that sitting down with a care provider and talking about one's well-being and making a choice to heal, even if it was a fake medicine, was healing and, and unlocked these things in the body that helped the body heal itself. There's a documentary um, that I watched recently called Heal. And uh, it's about chronic illness and about miraculous recovery and trying to make sense of it. Uh, and, you know... It's a really, I, I recommend checking it out. I don't endorse it wholesale. It's, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in it. 
And one of the things that somebody said um, in that documentary was uh, that when we believe healing is there and we believe love is there, when we believe that the, the earth or the community or God is, is intending to love us into healing, chemically it releases oxytocin in our brain that allows our body to heal. Like there are physical, chemical reactions. When we make a choice to trust that we can be healed, there are chemical reactions in our body that make that physically possible. They talked about the nocebo effect. That while the placebo effect, the trust that we can be made well, makes it more true, the nocebo effect, a mistrust, a thinking that medicines will fail or that our health will fail, actually does shut down our immune system. And so when Jesus says to this woman, your faith has made you well, you are healed by your faith, I don't think he's just being metaphorical. And I don't think that just applies to our bodies. And no, we don't want to just stop taking medicine. I want to be very clear on that. Medicine is good. And also, if we choose to take medicine as an act of trust that someone is caring for us, that someone's looking out for our well-being, that the God of the universe wants us to be well and is working with us and with the medicine and with their community to make us well, that that is healing. That is physically, spiritually, mentally, and emotionally healing. And it brings us out of that half-life and closer towards really living, being alive, fully alive. Now, this story of this woman is intercut into this other story. Part of the reason I think that they've been there for hours is because they suddenly get word that Jairus' daughter has died. Now, Jairus has still been there, waiting for Jesus to come and save his child. And so the other people who are bringing this news are like, Jairus, stop bothering Jesus. It's not even worth it. She's already dead. And Jesus turns to Jairus and says, have faith. Let's go. And so they pack up the entourage and they head towards the little girl. As they're headed towards the girl, they're encountering more and more people who are mocking them, who are saying, this is stupid. She's already dead. Why would you bother? It's irrational to hope. It's irrational to trust. He gets there and people are grieving. You know, people are, are sad that this, this child has died. And he... He says, why are you crying? She's only asleep. And they laugh at him. Um, one of the translations says they start jeering at him. And so he's like, all right, you guys are not in. You're not in for this. I don't want any of this nocebo. Get out. Right? That, that skepticism, that cynicism, I understand that it's self-protective. I know you're trying to keep yourself from hoping in case it doesn't work out, but it's actually hurting you and hurting her. You need to leave. And the people who need to be here are the ones who trust that it can be right, that it can be set right, that we can be made well. So he brings into the room his core people who have his back, who believe, who support him, and he brings in the child's parents who want more than anything for this to be true. And he does another thing that breaks all the rules. He touches this girl's body, technically at this point a corpse, which is against the law. And he says to her, Little girl, get up. Now, the other really beautiful and important piece about this is that he says it to her in Aramaic. And in the Mark text, it actually writes out the Aramaic words 
And, and they, they translate to little sheep. Little sheep, get up. It's a term of affection. He's speaking to her in her own language. The, the, the Testament, the, um, these stories were written in Greek, but Jesus would have spoken Aramaic, which is a local language, a lot more often. But in the story, it feels important for the author to point out, he is speaking to her in the words she will hear. He is speaking to her in her own language. I say this often at Zal. Our God is a creative God who doesn't need you to hear God's voice according to God's terms. God will speak to you in the ways that you can hear. And we've been talking today about this woman, this grown woman who has been able to reach out. But I think it's incredibly important that this is sandwiched in another story of a little girl who couldn't, of a little girl who was too far gone, who was too hurt. She couldn't reach out. So Jesus came to her. And that is who our God is. Our God is a God who co-creates but never leaves us behind. Our God is a God who swells to meet our energy when we reach out to touch even the cloak of divine. And also, our God is a God who will come to us through the throngs, across town, beyond the skepticism and cynicism and jeering, and hold our hand when we don't have it in us anymore because we already feel dead. And trusting in that, the people around us, Jarius, her father, intervenes and says, God, come do this. And so in this healing story, in this dual healing story, we see all three layers. We see the person who is seeking to be made well, reaching out and having her faith heal her. We see the scared parent, the one who is concerned for those that they love, seeking out God and saying, heal the one that I love. And we see God We see Jesus going to the one already declared dead, going against all odds, against all accounts, and showing up by her bedside, grabbing her hand and saying, little girl, little beloved, little lamb, get up, have a sandwich. Because that is what he does next. He says, get this girl a snack. This is a God who comes to us in our need. And so if we want to be fully alive, we have to trust that we can be. If we want to do more than survive, if we want to heal, we have to put our trust in the fact that our reaching out is salvific, that our reaching out to God and to one another means something. We have to trust that coming out on behalf of one another means something, that it invites God into spaces that the world is trying to block out. We have to trust that that cynicism that says we cannot be healed, that we can only survive, is actually serving to hurt us. That it needs to be cast out to make room for hope, to make room for healing. And above all else, we have to trust that when we don't have the strength to do any of those things, Jesus is doing them for us. That Jesus will come for us. That we can lean on one another to intercede on our behalf when we don't have the strength, when we have declared ourselves dead. Little girl, get up. Woman, by your faith you have been healed. Do not fear Jarius. I'll heal your daughter. Healing is a process and a journey. And like I said, it doesn't happen just at an individual level. We are in this together. 
God is healing all of creation, drawing us all in towards healing and fullness of life. So we start with us, but we also start with each other. We start in therapy and in prayer and with medications, but we also start in the street and at Bible study and in worship and when we sing. We start with trust and hope and imagination that it is possible, that one day we will be made whole, that God's reconciliation is a healing that begins in our own bodies, in the fiber of our beings with these miraculous bodies that God has given us that have the power to heal ourselves, that have the power to co-create miracle and healing and joy and life where we have been told there is only survival and death. And so, as we seek to do this together, as we stumble, we feel alive one day and dead the next. We proclaim ourselves as a community of life, Zhao, Zhao lives, Zhao seeks life, and Zhao trusts in the God of life to bring us through. Will you join me in prayer? Good and holy God, you know the extent of your power and your miracle. You know the extent of the healing that we need and that we long for. We pray that you would erase the cynicism, the skepticism in our lives, that you would allow us to trust not in false promises, not in snake oil, not in false teachings, God, but in your redemptive and healing love, that our desire to be made well is holy, that our desire to be made well is fundamental to participating with you in recreating this whole earth in your image. And God, when we do not have that in us, when we don't have the strength to even desire to be made well, when we feel so dead and gone, we pray we pray that you would remind us that you, are, that you come for us, that you will never relent, that your rescue and your promise is on the way because your healing never fails. Amen. And, uh, you know, take whatever posture of worship you might need right now. Um, if that's standing, if you would, with us either in body or in spirit, as we sing about that rescue, that we are not hidden, and that God will always be reaching out for us and always sending an army to find us when we need to be found. You are not hidden. There's never been a moment you were forgotten. You are not hopeless. Though you've been broken, your innocence stolen. I hear you whisper underneath your breath. I hear your SOS, your SOS. I will send out an army to find you in the middle of the darkest night. It's true, I will rescue you. There is no distance. Not be covered over and over. You're not defense. 
mentioned medical ritual before as an important part of our healing process that we are just learning about in our culture. 